Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. James C. Benton, who is the director of the Race and Economic Empowerment Project, the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. James is a U.S. historian who studies labor history and the ways in which organized labor has been affected by trade policy, economic change, and industrial decline from the New Deal to the present. He earned a PhD in United States history and a master's degree in history from Georgetown University and a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We will be discussing a multi-day virtual conference open to the public scheduled for this Wednesday, April 28th to Saturday, May 1st called Constructing a New Social Compact, a public forum on empowering the post-pandemic working class. James, thanks so much for your time. Sure, glad to be here and thanks for inviting me on. So could you begin by talking about what is the Kalmanovitz Initiative at Georgetown and also uh, about the Race and Economic Empowerment Project? Sure, the Kalmanovitz Initiative got its start about uh, 2009 and it's, um, it's an organization at Georgetown that really tries to do more than just um, research and and issuing reports. It involves students who work with organizations around DC or around the country. It involves uh, activists who work with people in organized labor, who work with faith organizations, who work with other activists across, across DC. And basically what we try to do is work on issues that affect not just labor, but poor people, working poor. The, the Race and Economic Empowerment Project is a, is a new offshoot of, of KI. The, the basic gist of the Race and Economic Empowerment Project is to bring Georgetown and KI more deeply into the work that's already being done by people in DC to address the real and worsening economic inequalities that exist. Uh, we've got some tremendous uh, disparities in, in health outcomes, educational outcomes, housing, gentrification is a, is a constant threat, housing affordability is a constant threat. And so there are, there are people in, in labor, there are people in faith organizations, and there are people, there are activists in different, different groups around town who are all working to, to, to halt this because, or, or to change it, alter it, because at the rate we're going, you know, we, we really feel that it's not going to be very long before Washington becomes a city of people who can afford to live anywhere but choose to live there and people who can't afford to live there but have nowhere else to go. And so, you know, the, the Race and Economic Empowerment Project seeks to join in with those efforts and uh, try to find ways to make uh, Washington a more inclusive city economically for all. And I really appreciate the work of not just being in your classrooms and teaching lessons, but trying to be socially engaged. I guess that may be part of the Jesuit tradition as well in Georgetown. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, part of, of Catholic social teaching that talks about the dignity of workers and the dignity of work and the, the rights of 
workers to form labor unions and to organize for improvements in their lives. And I think we're we're squarely in the midst of that in in the midst of that tradition and that teaching. And it is also part of the the Jesuit um, you know the Jesuit mission of going out into the world and and doing trying to do good especially so so there's a there's a bit of a religious component but it's also just more of a social common good um, uh, approach as well and then with the race and economic empowerment project mm -hmm. there's sometimes this debate or even sometimes like conflicting views of it's either class or it's race. Um, right. What is your response when someone tries to make it one or the other, or in general, uh, how do you like to talk about it? In general, I would say, I mean, a lot of my a lot of my more recent um, work has been looking at the historical impact of slavery, and once you do that. You know, you can be aware of class, but you know, I have to say that that um, in the United States, race seems to take precedent over class in in many ways. And when you look at that pattern, uh, especially from emancipation up 150 plus years and see how some of the things that were in place in the 1860s are still with us uh, in, in the early decades of the 21st century. Uh, we, we, we're, on this, we're in this policing crisis. Well, policing gets, gets a lot of its, um, its impetus from slave patrols and, and so forth. We're talking about mass incarceration. Well, a lot of the a lot of the punishments that originated in mass incarceration also got its start back in the in the antebellum era. Um, convict leasing, things things like that, abuses of abuses of workers got got their start through things like com, uh, convict leasing. So whenever I hear the the phrase, you know, is it class or is it race? I I, I think find myself thinking, well, there's a little of both, but really I believe that, um, that, um, that race takes, takes precedent mainly because of the work that I've done and the things that I've seen and, and learned. And I know it's, it's uh, not, as, not as detailed an analysis as one might hope, but uh, you know, that's, that's where I come down on it. So this is a very big week for labor in the United States. There's a huge push to get senators to sign on to the Pro-Labor Protect the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act. We have the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which created OSHA. And then Saturday is International Workers' Day, known as May Day or Labor Day in most other countries. Yes. And you have this incredible conference that's going to be online. It's open to the public amazing panels, amazing speakers. So yeah. what was the impetus to organize this conference? Oh my goodness. Uh, we started talking about this last year in the midst of the pandemic when, when we we're all sequestered on Zoom in our, in our relative house, in our relative locations. And really the, the idea behind it was just, we kept noticing how many people observed that the, the pandemic had laid bare 
many of the things that, many of the inequalities rather, that were built into American society, how uh, people were being affected based on their, you know, their, their class status, their race, their location, the types of education they had, uh, the types of jobs they worked, those sorts of things. And, you know, there, there was this feeling of, okay, people are talking about wanting to go back to normal. And the, the more we talked about it, the more we thought, well, normal wasn't all that good to begin with for a lot, a lot of folks. And now we're in this, we're in this upheaval. And also the, you know, the election played a role because we, you know, this is early, middle 2020, and we don't know how the election is going to come out. So there, there, are these, there are these things that are churning in the background that make us think, hmm, this is a, this is a time where you could see major crises and you could see a possibility for change coming out of them. And that's where the, that's basically where the impetus for this came from. You know, we, we looked at it and we figured, hey, we've got, it's not just a pandemic. You've got a, you've got a pandemic, you've got a climate crisis, you've got a racial justice crisis because this was right as uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, um, their, their deaths uh, got into the news and raised issues of police brutality, police conduct. And um, uh, then you've got a, what we started out calling a leadership crisis, but really is a crisis of democracy. You know, the, the leadership matters, but it's also a matter of, is, is, are, are our political leaders rising to the types of challenges that we're facing? Are they really trying to meet the needs of, of people or are they looking the other direction? And so from that, we started thinking about how to build a conference that would offer a platform for people to talk about changes, to talk about how to make this period where we are starting gingerly to emerge from the pandemic. I don't think it's over, but I think we're taking steps toward the end of the pandemic. How do we move forward in such a way that we build a, a social compact that's more inclusive. And you know, our, our, our model back then, because a lot of us at KI, we have, uh, I think, a half dozen uh, historians. And all of us are looking at US history in some way. We were really thinking about the New Deal as the model, because for all the, all the successes that it had, there were some real glaring failures of people being left behind or left out of, of uh, New Deal legislation, people being left out of subsequent legislation like the GI Bill. And those, those contributed to a lot of the economic uh, inequalities that, that uh, have been exacerbated over the past four or five decades. So that's, that's basically where the thought came from and, and we just built on it and it began to gain momentum and finally, uh, six or seven months later and a lot of work here we are uh we've got uh, we've got this this really amazing uh, conference that has about um, 20 panels with 150 uh participants and 
we're looking at topics like workers and democracy, the infrastructure of care, climate crisis, immigration, uh, technology rights as workers' rights, and so forth. And, and I think it's a really it's it's going to be a really good um, thing for people to tune in and witness and and think about as as we go through this really busy week. And I think it'll, it'll be a great way to see a lot of the who's who in the labor movement as well in the United States. And yes, I, it'll be a great uh, way to get people networking, I think, too, um, mm -hmm. to, to really think about, you know, what the topics are and, and kind of what we should be doing after, uh, you know, this this coming week. And I'll definitely put in the show notes all of the registration. It is free to the public. Yes. And what do you hope to achieve following the conference? You Are know, there some things that you hope this will lead to? You know, one of the things that, that we, we talked about, and I think we landed on, is that I, I would say we hope to instill a greater sense of purpose and a greater sense of urgency. Not that it doesn't exist right now, because there, there are lots of people in communities all over the country, all across, all across the world, who realize that, that um, things, things can be better and they're, they're moving to make things better. But I guess one of the things you can, one of the best things you can gain from, a, from an event like this is a sense of solidarity. Many times people who are doing this work in the streets and communities and in the, you know, the schools and the churches and the civic organizations they feel they they might feel isolated. They might feel separated from others. And conferences like these often offer a a feeling of solidarity, a sense of hey, I'm not doing this by myself. There are other people out here who I can either network with, or other people out here who I can uh, talk with or exchange ideas with. And and I think if if that were to occur from this from this gathering and not only this gathering but subsequent gatherings because this isn't just a one-time conference we see it as as the start as the convening of a process that lasts about uh probably about another year or so going toward the 2022 elections to really think about what a new social compact means how to construct it, how to um, put it in action, and you know how to how to what I what I said earlier. Instead of thinking about a back to normal, think about a new normal. How to create a new normal uh, from where we are now. And I couldn't agree more. This is a revolutionary moment, and the question is, which way is the wave going to break after yeah. this? And we need to put in all of our efforts and solidarity and working together to make sure it breaks in the most positive manner possible. Because there is also a huge opportunity to, you know, as you mentioned earlier, like question of the whole paradigm of what got us here. And, mm -hmm. and some of the other aspects of work is also, we need to connect the communities, the schools, the housing, right. jobs, everything is, is interconnected here. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, 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 critical, the critical importance of, of coalitions and not just coalitions of like-minded organizations, but coalitions of movements is, is really key. And, and I think, I think pe people are doing that, but you, you can always, we can always use more of it. 
especially especially at times like these when when we're faced with such uh, big problems and and the the response has been so cramped you know where people instead of saying okay here's a problem what are we going to do about it how can we change it instead for the last few decades it's been well we can't do this we we can't we can't change this because this political group might be offended or opposed or this this uh, legislative roadblock stands in the way we got the pandemic and suddenly Congress and the federal government found a way to literally create trillions of dollars overnight for all kinds of COVID relief. So don't tell me that things aren't possible. It's, it's that you don't have the will to do it. And now with, with, um, with where we are coming forward in this, in this pandemic and all these associated crises, it, we need more thinking like that, as opposed to this, well, we can't do this. Uh, people, I don't think people really want to hear that. I don't, they don't want to hear, we can't do this. They want to hear how we can find a way to make it, to make change happen. And the civil society and the work that you're doing is going to help with that push. So yeah, we hope we're, we're running close on uh, the time. And mm -hmm. before we close, I have a couple more questions that are more focusing on your work. Sure. outlook and i saw you have a forthcoming book published by illinois press called fraying fabric right what is this book about and when will people be able to read it the short answer is we hope the the book will be out in early 2022 um, the book itself is about trade policy from the new deal to the present and when I say trade policy, I don't mean a bunch of statistics about tariffs and things like that. What I mean is how workers saw trade policy in terms of foreign competition. I focus on the textile and apparel industry nationwide, which from the 1930s to uh, the present went from being one of the largest uh, manufacturing industries in the country employing at one point one in every seven manufacturing workers in this country to now being maybe 100, 180,000 workers total, textiles and apparel. So you've gone from millions of workers down to 180,000. And a lot of it, a lot of it looks at um, the trade regime that began in the, in the New Deal. And it essentially argues that the federal government devoted a lot of attention to lowering trade barriers and promoting trade around the world, but didn't devote the same amount of effort to uh, workers' rights and protecting workers' voices. And as a result, we got, we've gotten all these, all these trade, uh, trade agreements and trade policies that have hollowed out uh, many communities across the country. And the, the result of that has been that workers who relied on manufacturing became wary of trade policy and eventually gave up on supporting politicians who backed those types of policies and wound up going for someone who vowed a new reaction or a new direction on trade policy. Unfortunately for, for them and for the rest of the country, that politician was Donald Trump in 2016. And uh, trade wasn't the only issue that 
was behind his election. Of course, you know, there were many other factors, but for a lot of working class uh, blue collar workers, that became an issue. Now, there's a distinction because white voters, white working class voters did go for Trump harder than their Hispanic and African-American counterparts. So you have to pull, put a race analysis in there. It wasn't just all working class voters, but there was, there was enough of a significant swath of working class voters who went that way among another, a number of other issues that wound up playing a role in the 2016 election. So it's a, it's a very, it's, fascin it's a fascinating work, uh, not, not because of that, but because you get a sense of how workers saw themselves and how workers saw uh, the importance of trade on their jobs and tried to say something to stop it. You think of NAFTA. Uh, this, people were expressing these types of opinions in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, well, well before NAFTA was even thought of. So, you know, they're, they're, and even in the, into the 1930s, they were, they were expressing these types of sentiments. So, so it's, it's important to remember that workers as labor had had these really conscious views on imports and how they affected their jobs. And that's something I think that's been not lost to history, but something that we don't pay attention to as much anymore. So I think it's a, I think it'll be a fascinating thing. We just got to get, we just got to get it out into the world and, and uh, hopefully that will be sooner rather than later. Yeah, and having uh, gone to school during the, the reign of the new Democrats and mm -hmm. Clinton and globalization was this completely positive thing. But as history has shown, it's been a race to the bottom, runaway shop. And I think it's just been a way to break the back of organized labor globally yeah. in, in some ways. And um, globalization, now people are starting to rethink. But And, and it and as a as a as someone who grew up in a textile community in in the South in North Carolina, I saw firsthand because a community that was thriving and had had jobs, they weren't the best jobs in the world. Don't get me wrong, but they were steady. And between the 1980s and the 2000s, those jobs vanished. And now those communities that had been thriving are struggling and, and scratching and clawing their way back to some kind of existence. It, it won't be the same, but, um, but it's, it's, immeasur it's immeasurably changed numerous communities around the country. You, you can look at all kinds of industries and you can see the impact of, of not just the new Democrats policies, but, but also the policies of, of um, workers. I mean, not workers, policies of, of businesses who are all too eager to accept these types of deals. And in some cases, the um, the impact of organized labor's decisions to support trade as a as a way of of uh, fighting the Cold War, for instance. So it's there's no clear villain, there's no clear hero. Labor capital and the state all bear some degree of responsibility for what happened in the last eighty years on trade policy. Definitely look forward to checking out Fraying Fabric when it comes out. All right. And uh, in closing, I want to end on some type of optimism. So where do you see opportunity and hope in 2021 and beyond? You know, I was, I was wondering about, uh, I was thinking about this because uh, we, we did a, we did a panel a few, a couple of months ago on, on uh, how, where things were going in DC in 2021. And, you know, I gotta say that 
there's a good deal of, I would say, I wouldn't say optimism, but people, people are determined. People who are doing this type of work, uh, whether it's in uh, fighting police brutality, whether it's in fighting for economic justice, whether it's in fighting for greater inclusion, uh, people are really feeling that they are on the verge of, of accomplishing something big. And even in the midst of what seems to be overwhelming odds, uh, you know, all sorts of state power arrayed against them, uh, hostile legislation, hostile legislators, hostile public opinion, uh, but people have decided that they really want some change. And, and as long as we have people who are working and organizing and demonstrating and, and doing this type of work, I think that's one of the greatest sources of opportunity uh, now and into the future. And, you know, that, that to me is bigger than a legislative win on a bill or, um, you know, some, some, kind of, some kind of federal program or some state program or things like that. Because if, if people in the communities are organized and working, there's always gonna be a chance that, that we, we have, there's always gonna be the opportunity for us to get things right. And that's part of what we want to see through this, through this um, conference, you know, a greater sense of how do, we, <clears throat> how do we emerge from these crises? How do we navigate our way through these crises and emerge um, in a better place? emerge in a place where more people have a shot to advance in this country, economically, socially, politically, you know, whatever, whatever category you throw out. So, so that's, that's the place where I see opportunity and hope more, more than anything else. <clears throat> Dr. James C. Benton, thank you so much for your time and everyone should go out and go to the, check out this online uh, seminar and, and on constructing a new social compact and I'll put it all in the show notes and, uh, very nice meeting you. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks again for the opportunity to talk today.